Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. So when you think about the word reach, which is going to be a very big word for us from now on in our church, it brings to mind a couple important things. One is that you reach for things that matter to you, right? I mean, you reach for things that are important and desirable, The second is that you're reaching because they're not easy to grab. What you reach for means it's not a thing that you can roll over in bed and there it is in your hand. There's an intention, a purposefulness with which we strain after something good. And that's important to keep in mind because there are so many things that can be said about our vertical relationship with God and our horizontal relationships with other people. But you will notice that the themes of these messages are all about addressing the barriers or the things that give resistance in our lives to doing that. Now, last week, we talked about what do you do when people around you are less than perfect? And, And the message was about making room for the failings and weaknesses of others. Do you remember that? The fact that everybody in your life is imperfect. Everybody in your life will hurt you or screw up at some point in their lives. And you're going to have to deal with that. And if you have a one strike in your out policy, you will die alone because nobody can bat a thousand in your life. And so we, we, we thought about what does it mean to make room for the weakness and sin of other people and let them be imperfect as we do life together. This morning, we're going to talk about a different kind of reach. It's one thing to reach out to someone in forgiveness and say, you know what, you're a jerk, but I'm a bigger person, so I'll let you in. That, that kind of feels good almost to do. You know, like, I'm the big person, you're the dweeb, and I'm going to reach across, or actually we're talking about reaching down and saying, I forgive you. But what do you do when you're the jerk? What do you do when you realize you're the one who has caused pain and done wrong and been imperfect And you still have to reach across that gap. What do you do when you're the one who is in need of forgiveness and mercy? You know, Jesus gave a very interesting teaching in Scripture. In Matthew chapter 5, during his Sermon on the Mount, he turned with me. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26. We'll also flash it up there on the screen. Listen to what he says. You have heard that it was said to those of old... You shall not murder, and, you, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool. By the way, in Greek, that's a much stronger word. It, it's really, uh, um, it's a word that's more like, you stupid moron. It's a very hard word for fool. You will be liable to the hell Fire. Pretty strong. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. That's a pretty powerful and radical teaching from the mouth of Jesus. What he's dealing with is a situation in which a person is coming to worship, 
And they realize that not all is well in their life in terms of relationships. Now, here's the thing. We are notorious compartmentalizers, aren't we? We have this way of putting every different issue in our life in a, in a tidy little container, like little Tupperware boxes for our lives, right? And so you've got your work issues. You put that in a nice little Tupperware container, seal it up. And on Friday, you put that thing in the fridge and go, I ain't even thinking about that till Monday. I will not let those fools at work follow me into my weekend, right? And then you've got issues at, at, at home and, and the things you have going on with your spouse and then maybe with people at church and your neighbors. Maybe you're having a feud with your neighbor over his dog pooping in your lawn or the runoff from his, his lawn creating a little pond in yours or something. Who knows what's going on? But I'll bet you you've got a bunch of stuff going on and the way you sleep at night and stay sane is you put everything into a little Tupperware and you don't let the different areas mix in with each other and let the smells flow over and so it all all stays kind of clean. And that's the way we live. We live as though life is not an integrated whole, but a collection of totally unrelated things. But is that really the way life works? Do the things that happen at work have really no effect on your home life? Can you really be sane and human and put aside the feud you're having with your neighbor when you're playing with your children? I think it's a form of mental illness to be able to do that and not at all be affected by it. Did you hear what I just said? It's a form of mental illness. In other words, you're crazy. If you can compartmentalize everything in your life and actually think that it never affects each other. And what God is saying is when you come to this place for 90 minutes on a Sunday morning, do you suppose for a second that what happens in your other relationships throughout the week, Monday through Saturday, have no bearing on what is taking place in this room on Sunday morning? Do you think that the two don't bleed over into one another? And to correct that error, Jesus says, no, it has absolutely everything to do with each other. In fact, what Jesus says is, the worthiness and acceptability of the worship you give on Sunday morning is predicated upon the relationships you have with other people. If you are not growing and changing and transforming into the likeness of Christ, if you're making a mess of every other relationship in your life, and then you come as a pious believer, a religious person, to church on Sunday and believe that God accepts what you're offering, you are dead wrong. Because that, that precondition is a part of, a necessary part of what it means to worship God. These are not motions we go through on Sunday morning, but it is all part of a celebration that we are becoming new creations because of Jesus Christ and his presence and active work in our lives. I want you to look at verse 23. Actually, before you even look at verse 23, look at verse 21. It, It talks about a person who commits murder in their hearts because of the anger, the hatred, and the... What's the best word for it? Disgust or disdain they feel towards another person. That's a funny thing. Sometimes we're mad at someone because they do something bad to us. Sometimes we're mad at someone, like I said last week, just because they're stupid. Because they're just being such a fool in our presence and it upsets us. And so some people don't have a good handle on their anger. And when that triggering event happens, they lash out in a fit of rage. I want to ask you guys something. And I want you to be honest with yourselves. Do you have anger issues? Do you have a problem with your temper? Do you have this thing where other people can so easily get you upset? 
you find that every other sentence you speak begins with the words, I'm upset or I'm angry because. You find it hard to sleep at night because you're tossing and turning over the things other people do. In fact, are you so angry you don't even know you're angry because that's just how you are all the time. You know, most people with anger problems, they don't know they have a problem because they're too busy blaming it on everybody else. They can't believe what a screwed up world we live in. Why does everyone else make me do this? They hit people and go, see what you made me do? And they never blame themselves. They're angry at the whole world. And maybe justifiably so. Maybe everyone in their life is a screw-up, but does that in any way excuse the outbursts and the rage with which they've painted every area of their life? If you have an anger problem, I will bet you that you are leaving behind you a huge bloody trail of wounded hearts. I'll bet you that in in every relationship in your life, there are people who say to you, wow, you've really hurt me before. And the most painful part is you don't realize how much you hurt me. You don't realize what pain you've caused me. You're so busy moving on from this, this particular point in time to the rest of your life without realizing you really stabbed me in the heart with your words and with your attitude and the look in your eyes. Some of you have serious anger issues. And if the person sitting next to you is jabbing you going, <laughs> pay attention, take notes. If they request a CD and put one under your pillow this week, you got an anger problem. And the thing is, somebody else has to tell you that because you actually believe it's always the world's fault that they bring this out of you. Now, if you have anger issues, then chances are you have done wrong. Maybe you have, and here's a couple diagnostics. You know you've got an anger problem if you've ever yelled at your kids and seen them look back at you with sheer terror. They're learning nothing except how to be afraid of you. And when you see that look, it's convicting. You think you're correcting your child? All they know is when you get angry, I'm not getting anywhere near you. That's fear. And it's not fear of the constructive or holy variety. Do people start saying things to you and then suddenly go, Actually, never mind. Does that happen a lot? People stop speaking in mid-sentence because they know that if they finish that sentence, they will be punished severely by your anger issues for what they've just dared to say. Have you ever found yourself fantasizing or even acting out on impulses of physical violence? There's a story from South America where two Brazilian friends, good friends, were arguing about politics and one of them killed the other. And a journalist was interviewing the the killer, and he said, what happened? He goes, I don't know. We started out friendly enough, peacefully talking about politics. He and I are very different in views, and when I ran out of words, I killed him. When I ran out of words, I killed him. Have you ever gotten to that point where you're so mad, you're like, and you just want to stab him because it's the only thing that can adequately convey what you're feeling in your heart towards that person right then. If you've ever felt that, you have problems. Something you've got to deal with before the Lord. That is not okay. It is not normal. It's not just your personality. And don't blame it on your mother and father. You have an issue that needs to be dealt with. You will destroy every life you touch. And if that's you, then this message, the rest of it, may really be speaking especially to you. 
And Jesus begins with that teaching because he said, we sometimes wound people out of our anger and don't even realize it. And then he goes on to say, now suppose you're at church worshiping, you've got your little chickens or goat or whatever you're going to sacrifice, it's right there, and you're all ready. You are in God-fearing mode. Sunday best. Everything's ready. And there at the altar of worship, you happen to remember that somebody's got something against you. What do you do? Now, that's a very interesting scenario that Jesus paints for us. I mean, it's a very interesting picture because he's not saying, what if you realize that you're really ticked off at someone? But he's saying, what if you remember at that place that somebody else is really ticked off at you? Now, tell me something. How on earth does somebody remember that somebody else might be mad at them? Do you realize most of us psychologically have so many defense mechanisms built in that that kind of memory will usually never just pop into our minds on their own? When's the last time you're just driving your car jamming the music and go, ooh, hold on. I remember last week I was kind of arrogant towards somebody and I, I think I should apologize. Does that happen a whole lot to most of you? It doesn't. The reason you just moved on is because either you are so insensitive or you're so self-protective, you can't face the sinfulness of what you did in that incident. And you cover over it. You block it out of your consciousness. And as a result, unless you are intentionally trying to remember, the trail of your wounds that you left behind will probably be forgotten. But Jesus says, listen, when you're sitting at the altar of worship, this memory is not because, listen, it's not because you're just sitting there daydreaming like some of you are doing right now while I'm preaching. You're like, I wonder when it's going to be warm enough to golf again. And, oh, I just remembered something. I have to take the, the, the roast out of the oven right when I get home. It's not that kind of, ooh, if you happen to remember, like you were dawdling or something. The point is this. It is an intentional remembering. It is that st- sitting at the place of worship, the first thing you'd go through before you even approach God is you reflect on yourself. You think about the state of the heart that you have brought into worship. And there is an inventory or a reflection period that is a necessary preparation for worship. I want to ask you, how did you prepare for church this morning? How many of you spent more time in front of a mirror than on your knees getting your heart ready to be here? You know, let me just say with with humility, sometimes when you come to church and nothing happens... It's because I delivered a steaming pile of duty, right? I mean, like, sometimes I just didn't have time to pray and study and give my very best to the effort. And sometimes it's because, uh, you know, I should have done better to be faithful. But sometimes it's because you walked in here the way you walk into a movie theater. Huh. I wonder if it's going to be a good movie. I wonder if the previews are going to be like. I wonder if the songs are going to be good. And there's zero preparation. Nothing in your heart is ready for this. And so everything that happens in this room remains external and superficial. Oh, it's pretty good music. Dang, that guitar, they're jamming today. I wonder what pedal they were using. And you're thinking about that kind of stuff. Nothing is happening in here because nothing's ready to happen in here. Instead, you're all about the activity, the hustle and bustle. If you teach kids, for example, in Sunday school, the minute you walk in the building, you're probably running around like a chicken with his head cut off, getting this and that ready, all the craft pieces in, in place. Church can be a very busy, very activity-oriented, external experience. Kind of like skipping stones on a pond. And seeing that smooth pebble bounce five times off the surface of the water. And the thing is, that's not the way it's meant to be. Something's supposed to happen in here every time we worship. 
And that's why it is so critical that a necessary part of the approaching of God and worship is that we pause for some self-reflection and inventory. What have I done this week? Where is my heart right now? How does God see me? Who am I right now? Those are things that have to happen in order for the rest of what happens here to have an effect on your life. And that may explain why for some of us, week after week, Sunday is actually kind of a not-so-satisfying, take-it-or-leave-it experience. You know what they say about painting? If you don't prime the walls first, the paint doesn't stick. I think that's really what we're talking about, isn't it? And so Jesus seems to suggest, as a given, that when you come to worship God, there must be some taking stock of yourself. And very often when you humble yourself before God and say, Lord, what, am I, what do I smell like to you? That's one of the ways I do it. Because I'm very sensitive to smells. If you have a strange smell and you get near me, I might smile and act like fine, but you'll notice me inching away because I can't handle weird smells. Okay? And if you have a certain stank on you or something, I, you know, I, I, I can pick it up right away. Sometimes I stink. I don't exactly have minty fresh breath all the time either. Sometimes the way I assess myself is I say, God, what do I smell like to you right now? And that's one of the ways God vividly talks back to me. He says, you know, Dave, all week, you've been really short with people. Sometimes he tells me there's one person who is holding out hope that I'll give more of my heart to them, and I don't. He convicts me of that. A lot of times in that reflection and inventory, he'll point out the wrong that I've done, but also... He'll point out the opportunities I had to do good to another. In fact, a time when I was almost obligated to do good to them, and I chose not to. I just blew them off. I failed them by not being good to them in Jesus' name. And those are the ones that sometimes hurt the most and really trouble my soul. I should have done better by that person. And I missed a real opportunity to remind them that God is alive and that Jesus loves them. And when you reflect, you'll be surprised how vivid the memories become and how clearly God will rewind that reel and show you your week from his vantage point and not your own. Our reel looks very different. And don't you know, like the movie Vantage Point that's coming out, how you remember something or see it depends on which camera angle you're shooting from, right? Believe me, it'd be much more interesting, I hope, a much more interesting shot if the camera was in front of me while I'm preaching than if it was behind me. You get a whole different viewpoint. And that's the thing. You might remember your week entirely from a self-centered perspective. But how does God remember your week? What, this, what stuck out in his memory that he'd like to deal with in your life that you're not, you're not letting him because you don't pause long enough to ask, what did my life look like to you this week? And so Jesus says, when you come to worship, Reflect, and I will tell you things that your life is too busy and noisy to hear most days. Now, when you do that, what will you do with the information you get? What if as you're praying, God says, hey, you've got a serious problem. This person is hurt because of what you did and said. They've been carrying around this wound all week. It has scarred them, and they haven't fully recovered And you need to deal with it. What will you do? You know what Jesus says? And this is such a radical teaching. He says, I want you to drop everything. I don't even want you to pack up your bags and fold your Bible. Just leave it right there. 
You're going to finish that act of worship. You're going to come back to this place. But right now, there's a much greater priority. And the, the hastiness with which Jesus commands such a person to leave indicates how seriously he's taking this. You know how every stewardess, right? Every flight attendant, they make that announcement, the safety announcement before your flight. They say, in the event of an emergency landing, don't take anything with you. Just leave. And I'm thinking all the time in the back of my head, whatever, if it kills me, I'm getting my laptop as I jump out. Too much of my life is stuck on that thing, and I haven't backed up in months, so there's no way I'm leaving that. Now, isn't that sad? I'm thinking that, right? But, but what they're saying is when there is an emergency landing, you have to have a sense of priority. It's important enough to live, so forget your stuff. Get out with your skin. And that's really what Jesus is saying. When you realize that you've done wrong and someone is wounded because of you, because of your anger and your insensitivity, there is nothing more important at that moment than to go from that place. Don't even finish the sentence you were saying to God. Go from that place and make it right. And then come back and finish your worship to God. Now, if Jesus had never said that, I would never teach that. Because that doesn't kind of fit, sit well with me. I don't want to be preaching and suddenly see a few of you just go, and you walk out and I don't see you again. I don't want that. That would be kind of like, oh, that's create a little chaos. But that's actually what Jesus is teaching. It wreaks havoc on church order. But it has a lot to do with how you think God relates to us. God isn't happy with our worship when we're buttering Him up, but we have wounded everybody else. What He wants is for us to love our brothers and sisters with the same intensity and spirit with which we love Him. It can't be a schizophrenic kind of love. We can't compartmentalize the Christianity so that I'm great with God, but I just hate people. That is simply never going to be okay with God. And so there you are. You leave everything behind and you go. And don't you wish Jesus would have just stopped talking right there and said, look, when you remember someone has something against you, I wish what he would have said was, quietly kneel in the church, say, I'm sorry, God, feel really bad about yourself, and then finish worshiping. I totally wish that's the way Jesus had taught us. Because that's easy. I can preserve my dignity and my reputation. I can guard my ego. It's convenient. I just sit there and feel bad, remorseful, say sorry to God, and move on. But Jesus doesn't give us that freedom. He burdens us with this action. He says, no, don't just make this a private thing between you and God, because you've hurt somebody else on this earth. They are not a symbol or a figment of your imagination. That's a human being in your life that you have seriously wounded. You need to go physically and make amends because that person has something against you. You know what that says to me? It requires an actual event. It's not just about an invisible change of heart or feeling of remorse. It is an act, an encounter that is required of us. But how is that supposed to come down? How is that event supposed to unfold? Sometimes, have you ever found yourself calling a person with an impassioned conviction and the minute they answer, you have no idea what you're going to say? You've got to be ready for this encounter. When you realize somebody has something against you and God tells you to go and make things right, let me give you some practical ways you can prepare for that encounter. Because you know and I know that's going to be a very uncomfortable thing. How many of you guys dread an encounter like that? Just raise your hand. That's like the most uncomfortable thing you can imagine. I'm with you. I, I don't want to do that, especially if I'm the heel, if I'm the one who's done wrong. Here are some things you can remember. 
One is remember this. You're going to obey Jesus not to control the outcome. Okay? This is about you honoring the conviction God has placed on your heart, knowing that even if the person rejects your apology, it has been said and there's power to that. God may yet use that apology over time. Have faith in Him. But this is about you getting it off your chest and doing what God commands, not about you guaranteeing a certain result from this. And as long as you remember that, it will help you deal with whatever turns up. Remember this also. Nobody likes listening to excuses. Nobody. I know you have them, and I know you have some mitigating circumstances, some reasons why you felt felt compelled to do that. For example, you might say, look, I smacked you in the head because I had a bad headache, and you kept talking and wouldn't stop, and nothing you said was pleasant to my ears, and I was lazy and sleepy, so I just hit you to end the conversation. Now, what have I done? I've given all the reasons why in my reasoning, my mind, that made sense at the moment. But how does that make the other person feel? Have you ever given all of your mitigating circumstances to someone and they went, Oh, I would have hit me too. Thank you for that. I, I totally understand why you had to hit me. No. All they know is you hit me. That hurt. And I'd just like you to own up to it. I'm sure everybody acts for reasons. I just don't care what those reasons are right now. What I care about is that you can own up to it and just say sorry without trying to save your own hide. Say sorry without all the clauses and disclaimers and the legal fine print. Just say sorry. I don't need to know your thought process. I don't need to know about the day you had at work. About the person who stared daggers at you or cut you off on the road. None of that matters to me. What matters is I was someone to you, and you wounded me, and I expect an apology. That's all that matters. And if you go with all the things that are going to make you look better and look less evil, you're going to fail at this task of apologizing. Write out what you're going to say. Have someone objective read and go, oh, no, cross that out, cross that out. Here's the only thing you need to say. Two words. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Forget the but. Leave the but at the door. Okay? No buts. Just, I'm sorry. Do you know how powerful that is? Because when they see you coming, when they see your number on the caller ID, or see you standing at their doorstep, their first impulse is going to be to shut the door, just go, (laughs) Sometimes you try to call them, they don't even pick up the calls. I've had people do that to me, and it's so painful. They see me coming, they go, I cancel you. Because I know it's coming. All your stinking fast-talking excuses and reasons, I don't want to hear it. And they're ready for a fight the minute they see you. But do you know how powerful it is simply to say, listen, I'm sorry. Mea culpa. I did wrong. I'm not even going to tell you why I did it, other than that I'm a wicked person. I stink. And you deserve better than that. And I should have known better. And I'm sorry. Now, I don't know about you, but if that person had their dagger unsheathed and tucked into their belt, they're going to slowly take it out and shove it into the couch cushion because they don't need it anymore. They're ready for a fight, and you've just knocked their fight right out of them. Because what you've done is what they've been longing to hear anyway. A simple, I am sorry. Some of you guys right now are embroiled in a bitter conflict in your life because you stink at apologizing. You really suck at it. You, your apologies are worthless because they're more about making you look like a good person than about actually thinking about the other person's heart. Let me tell you something. A good apology 
has far less to do with how you feel afterwards and far more about restoring the other person's heart. It's not about you saying, I feel dirty, I want to feel clean. It's about you making sure the other person knows that you love them more than what that act represented. And that you intend to have a future with them. And that you genuinely know how badly you wounded them. That is a real apology. And the reason some of you keep fighting with your lover, your mate, your friends, your coworkers, is because you know, you've never learned how to apologize correctly. In the end, it still feels like it's my fault that you did that to me. What kind of apology is that? It's not an apology when you have to apologize right back to the person who apologized, is it? And that's something I want you to take away with you. So let's get a little practical. Let's suppose you're married, okay? <clears throat> or dating seriously. And on the way to church in the same car, you have just fought like cats and dogs. You know that kind of fight like, and you're like, you can't even steer the car. You're so angry. Things are turning red in your eyes. And you get, you finally pull in. You're dreading that moment when you pull into the parking lot of the church. And there's that awkward silence like, let's go in and sing songs to Jesus. And your stomach is turning. You want to throw up. And there's nothing in you that wants to walk in those doors. You know what's even worse is if you're like a Sunday school teacher. You know, all these little kids going, tell us a story, teacher. And your stomach is churning. You go, no, I can't do this right now. This doesn't feel right. You know what's amazing? If you practice Jesus' teaching here, he does not want you to walk into that church. He doesn't want it. He's not interested in anything at that point that you can say or do in this building if you haven't taken care of that greater issue in that car right there. Now, if you're a, a, a good churchman, I've just really punched you in the gut. What do you mean? They, they have to come to church. Church is where they'll get all the... No. God says, this is not the place where you come only to get therapy. This is the place you come to lift up worship to God. And if that's not something you can do, how dare we go through the motions as if God wants religion out of us? As if what he wants is for us to mindlessly just go, blessed be your name, kill you later, you know, in a land that is, you know, that's not what God wants from you or me. What he wants is for you to shut off that engine, look at each other in that car and say, look, pulling into this place reminds me that this is so beneath where you and I are meant to be loving and living our lives. There's a lot of issues at stake here, but I said things on the way here that I had no right to say. And I'm feeling those things, but it doesn't matter. I'm sorry that I talked like that to you, that I thought these things. I'm sorry. Do you realize that takes a great deal of time and maturity to get around to that? You might not actually get in here. We might find you in the parking lot sometime around 8 p.m. But you take care of that before you come and go through the motions in front of God. In fact, one commentary I read by a very conservative commentator, I mean, I could not believe this guy was saying this. He says, maybe you don't need, you're not even supposed to come to church for a couple weeks until you've dealt with a serious anger issue or a conflict in your life. Because the more you come here and just go through the motions, the more this religion poisons you. It makes you feel like maybe all of it is just emptiness after all. We're supposed to change when we come in here. And we're supposed to lift up glory to God when we come in here. And it's never supposed to be something shallow and superficial. It is supposed to involve all of us. And if you have somebody who's very upset with you, you need to go and make that right. 
before you finish going through the motions and worship with God. That last little bit about, you know, it seems kind of like a non sequitur about settling matters quickly in a court of law and that might throw you in jail and all that. You know what that's about? It's simply this. If you don't obey God in that conviction to do right, if you postpone it, if you sit here in this room right now and you're just going to go, oh, that convicts me. Yeah, I should, that's pretty good. But you have no intention of doing anything in the next 24 hours. Let me tell you what's going to happen in your life. As this last couple verses, as these last couple verses indicate, when you don't do what God tells you to do in healing a relationship, it escalates. It always does. A conflict never just stays where it is. I've seen, for example, boyfriend and girlfriend have a little argument. I say it's little because I have some experience in relationships, and when I listen to what they're fighting about, I just want to laugh, but I try really hard to just go, hmm, that's very serious. But in my mind, I'm going, you're a couple of idiots. I can't believe you throw this away over that. But, you know, to them, it's like, oh, it's so serious. And, you know, I just say, listen, if you don't deal with this today, two months later, this ridiculous situation is going to seem really huge. And when you say it out loud to other people, you're going to have to keep giving disclaimers like, I know this sounds so stupid, but you know why that happens? Because it escalates. That anger, that hurt, calcifies like drying cement in your heart. And two months later, you don't even know why you really fought. It's so stupid. You just remember that no one ever did anything to make it right. No one. Nobody did anything to address it. We just let time try to sweep it away. But your heart is like wet cement. It doesn't just go away. It's, it hardens in its exact state. You've all done that, haven't you, when you were a kid? Walk by a new sidewalk being laid and you went, and you put your hand in it. Am I the only hoodlum? Did any of you guys ever ruin a completely, perfectly good sidewalk by sticking your hand or something? We do that, and weeks later, we're fascinated. Look, there's my hand. It will always be there. That's right. It will. Just like that stupid wound that had no real basis in anything important, but because it was never dealt with, it has hardened exactly in its form. And it will be remembered and go into the books of your personal history as part of the folklore of why I can't ever really be 100% 100% trusting with this person. I actually still remember things that friends in high school did to me. When I look back, and I can laugh a little bit now, but you know how it is. You're still laughing like, oh, it was so stupid. But you, Ow, it's still, you know, it still hurts a little because it just, it's so set in its form. And it becomes part of my life story. When you apologize... When you make it right in obedience to God right away, you'd be amazed how that forest fire is doused and the problem is contained and you can move on with that person. One simple gesture to say, I'm still here. And you'd be amazed how you can rebuild even the most broken relationship. Some of you just really need to hear me this morning. and Stop thinking you know better than Jesus how to make life work. Trust him. This is his way works. It's so important that you obey. So here's what we're going to do. Something is happening to me. I keep ending at 11. You guys must be praying really hard, <laughs> fasting even. <clears throat> Why don't we take some time to respond to this? Because I think that God wants to actually talk to you names, faces, incidents, not just broad strokes and principles.
I wonder if the guys in the back, if you can get some music going for us, so that even the people on the praise team are able to just kind of sit for a while and come before God. I would invite us to, to sit quietly and, and just ask the Lord to show us. Don't do a lot of talking right now. Listen. and Say, God, I'm here to worship you, but I know that I'm not a perfect person. Have I done something to another person this or in my life even historically that really left another thing you might ask God to tell you is Lord if I had some opportunities to do good to another for whatever reason I just blew it off I disregarded the obligation I had towards my brother and I let them be on their own if so, Lord, bring to my mind now with vivid, high-definition clarity the memory of that offense, person, face, feelings, dates, and then compel me, God, in some way this week, in the next 24 hours, to do something that begins to make me Teach me to say sorry. I'll read you a passage before we reflect. Psalm 51, verses 16 to 17. Listen to what David says after he'd sinned with Bathsheba. You would not be pleased with sacrifices. I would bring them. If I brought you a burnt offering, you would not accept it. The sacrifice you want is a broken spirit, broken and repentant heart, O God, you will not despise. Let's go to God. How lovely is your dwelling place, O oh Lord Almighty. My soul longs and even faints for you. Whatever it takes next 24 hours, that you do something to begin the process of pursuing reconciliation. Begin right away. We bow together to pray. As we're doing so, I'll invite the praise team to come forward. Let's pray together. God, we've just sat for a few minutes in quiet before you. Lord, perhaps this is the preparation that we should go through every time that we gather to worship. And as we invited you to speak, Lord, many of us were reminded of a thing that we did or we failed to do that wounded and damaged someone that we care about in our lives. And their hearts are discouraged and damaged because of us. And that's just not okay. And we don't accept that in ourselves. And we know that you don't accept that in us. So now, Holy Spirit, having spoken and made clear the truth of what must be done, we also now ask that you would give us the humility and the inner strength to actually do what we now know we must. 
But we admit before you that most of our failures are not because of ignorance, but because of hard-heartedness, because of powerlessness. So we ask you now to be our strength. Help us to face that horribly awkward, uncomfortable situation. Help us to do it in your strength, filled with the power of your Holy Spirit. And through this simple act of obedience, repair these broken relationships in our lives, that even our worship of you might become so much more filled with joy and honesty. We ask this together in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.